If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to continue our series on following Jesus. Following Jesus. And I'd like to begin by asking, is there, are there any serious mountain climbers? I, I saw one. Okay, Fred, I see you. There you are. Okay. Anybody else that's like, you've done some serious mountain climbing. Has anybody even tried to do like Mount Everest? Did anybody try to do that? Fred, is it still on your bucket list? Okay. All right. I mean, like, this is a serious climb, and you've got to prepare and train. And if you're going to do Mount Everest, there are two rudimentary basic camps that are found at the south base camp in Nepal, and then you've got the north base in Tibet. And this is where you will go, and you will set up camp there. Doesn't that just look, like, wonderful? I mean, doesn't that, like, that would be the perfect vacation right there. And what happens at base camp is you get acclimated to the elevation, okay? So these are about, uh, about 18,000 feet high. You get acclimated to the elevation and the weather, and you get an opportunity to get a firsthand look what you think you're going to about to conquer or what might just conquer you, okay? And at this time, when you're at base camp, you're going to find out, like, okay, who's going with us? How are we going to do this? You make some fine-tuning, and you get ready for the challenges because you know them and you see them. And I present this to you because... Climbing Mount Everest is one thing, but if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to have absolute clarity as to where you're going, who you're going with, and what God has really called you to when it comes to following Jesus. How do you follow Jesus as a way of life? I want you to know this is something that I've been wrestling with for years and get started all the way back in my collegiate years. What does it mean to follow Jesus as a way of life? And if you're here today, if you're a Christian, you absolutely, on the forefront of your mind, you want to know, like, what does that really look like? Because I really do want to follow him. And right now, I want you to know, in our country, the stakes are getting high. What does it mean to follow Jesus as a way of life. Well, the first thing that you need to know is that if we're going to follow Jesus as a way of life, he needs to be the Lord of our lives. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 18. Notice what takes place here. Now, verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So there had been quite a bit of discourse. Jesus had been doing some teaching. They're in Capernaum. They're uh, against the Sea of Galilee. All these crowds are with them. Jesus is teaching them. And then Jesus gives the order. Do you see that? He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Now, in Jesus' key group, the, uh, the disciples that were actually traveling with him uh, were fishermen. That means they were experts at the Sea of Galilee. They had made a living. They knew how to navigate the waters. They also knew the dangers of the water, but one thing they most likely had never done was to do what Jesus had ordered them to do when he said, depart and go to the other side of the sea. You see, the Sea of Galilee isn't really that big. It's about 13 miles from north to south, about seven miles wide. They had never, though, gone to the other side because that was the Decapolis. That was the thoroughly pagan Gentile area. And they were, in just hours, if you ever keep reading in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, you're going to find out just how dark, how pagan these Gentiles could be. If you want to see what lostness looks like in action, just look at the welcoming committee with the Gerasene demoniac, okay? And so they were fearful, and yet Jesus had given them this order, 
this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the other side. And it's at this time the disciples are getting into this boat, boat that's going to be big enough to, to carry them all. It's only going to be about a two-hour journey from Capernaum to the other side, about 10 miles. And the crowds are watching this, but it's on this occasion that a couple of them make their statement, and it's like make their stand. And we find the first one here in verse 19, then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. A scribe, a man of letters, they're, they're developed in the ancient world, the grammatus. These were those who were skilled in reading, translating, interpreting. They spent their lives writing and giving translation, understanding, helping people understand legal documents. And in the, the Jews developed their own scribes, and they became very elite, highly esteemed. They were the most educated. They knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They were teachers. They were interpreters. They handled all legal documents. And they were highly valued and very esteemed. And what it looked like is scribes would align themselves with a rabbi, the one that they thought they would get the best education, the one that seemed to know the most. But these were an elite status of people, highly valued. And so this isn't just anybody saying, hey, Jesus, you know what? I think I want to do, I want to follow you, kind of wherever you might want to go, okay? This was a scribe. This is the first time any of the elite ever made a statement of saying, you know what, Jesus, I want to follow you. In fact, he makes it pretty loaded. He says, you know what? I'm going to go wherever you go. Here we have an Orthodox Jew, very religious, highly educated, and in his mind, he feels like Jesus is just another rabbi. But he's like, man, this guy's got a lot going for him. There's, no one has wisdom like this. He says, Jesus, I want you to know I'm going with you wherever that might be. It's very interesting. This scribe breaks, breaks rank with all the other scribes. If anybody knew Jesus' identity as painted in the pictures and spoken of and written from the Old Testament, it was the scribes. They could see he was systematically, by his character, his words, his actions, and his miracles, fulfilling the prophecies that were given about the, old, about the Messiah. There were about 330 Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, and Jesus systematically keeps hitting them. And these scribes could see it, but it was because of their pride they, Jesus wasn't basically aligning themselves with their system, and especially all the man-made rules and laws. Jesus didn't have any, seemingly any time for that. In fact, his message was very different. His gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, was quite different than just follow a bunch of rules and be good and religious and do what we say. And this scribe breaks rank. He says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But then notice how Jesus responds to this. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Rather peculiar. You would think like Jesus would go, great. Because, I mean, if 
this scribe could give a lot of legitimacy to Jesus, right? Highly educated, learned, very respected. Jesus' disciples, pretty ragtag, right? You got a bunch of fishermen. They're going to be kind of rough. You got like a, a tax collector, definitely hated by the Jewish people because he was a turncoat. You've got a zealot. I mean, not, not like your typical band of scholars. To have a scribe saying, I want to follow you, you'd think like Jesus would go, that's exactly what I need because that's going to give me a lot of legitimacy with all the other highly elite and educated. It's going to make the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees think twice because now I've got someone that's highly educated that's now following me. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus makes a statement, and this is the first time he uses this reference, the Son of Man. He says, you know, will you really follow me wherever I go? Do you know who I am? And do you know what it means to follow me? The foxes, they got little holes they can hide out and spend the night in. The birds, they've got nests. But I want you to know, I, the Messiah, I am the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. I am the one who will be hunted down, will face persecution. I will suffer. In fact, I'm going to suffer on behalf of my people. His suffering would entail even being the one where the God's just wrath against sin would be poured out upon him and his body. And Jesus says, really? Will you follow me anywhere I go? Do you know who I am? And will you really follow me as the Lord of your life? Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, this scribe would instantly know what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man speaks of humanity. And indeed, here is Jesus, fully in the flesh, truly man. But it's the incarnation. He is also fully God. And when Jesus says the Son of Man, this man who is the master of the Old Testament would know immediately what Jesus was referring to. In fact, it was very likely a passage that he had memorized. It was found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 where we have Daniel recording this great scene where the Father gives this Son of Man the eternal kingdom. In fact, here it is, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He would be thinking these words when Jesus said, Son of Man. He says, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In the Gospels, 83 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Absolute humility, but at the same time, speaking of his deity. And Jesus says, do you know who I am? And are you really willing to follow me? Because I want you to know, I have nowhere to lay my head. I will be hunted down. I will be rejected. I will be persecuted. Do you really want to follow me? That's what's at the forefront here. You know, it's one thing when the uh, emotions are running high. Certainly the crowd and hearing all the wisdom. And that's a pretty public deal, man. Jesus is getting in the boat with his guys. And this scribe, man, everybody would know who he is going, whoa, 
this guy wants to follow Jesus. And it would feel good. And he would be like, people would be like, yeah, man, that's what we're talking about. That looks great. But Jesus says, you need to know that my mission goes through a cross. If you're going to follow me, it's going to require sacrifice and suffering. You're used to following rabbis, high esteem, good accommodations, well taken care of. That isn't me. My mission goes through a cross. You know, Jesus understood that human nature is fickle. We're easily persuaded. And it's, it's one thing when the crowd's all in it to kind of jump on the bandwagon. But I want you to know it's the great separator when there's sacrifice or suffering that is being called. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to you. The great Bible commentator, R.C.H. Lenski, observes this. Such a person sees the soldiers on parade the fine uniforms and the glittering arms, and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, the graves, perhaps unmarked. If sacrifice and suffering are for the Messiah, then I want you to know it is going to be for his followers of well, as well. And if you're going to follow Jesus, he needs to be the Lord of your life. And friends, that's going to be the great separator, isn't it? There are many people that will say, absolutely, I'll follow Jesus as long as, as long as it doesn't really interfere with my plans. Uh, I get to do what I want. All my money, I get to spend it however I want. It's, I, that Jesus makes no claims upon me. I want you to know I'm really eager for this whole forgiveness of sins. Really have no interest in going to hell whatsoever. What do I need to do? Just believe? Okay, count me in. I'm going to believe. But the idea of following Jesus as Lord? Well, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. And here's the big breakdown. We have gotten so good at sugarcoating the gospel. And that means that we eliminate any claims that Jesus has on those who are truly trusting him for salvation and for forgiveness of sins. To know him is to come to a place in our lives where we're yielded, and it's an ongoing yielding to follow him because he's the Lord of our lives. For some people, the whole idea of obeying Jesus, why why that's just an option. You don't really have to obey Jesus. And hence, you don't even have to know what he has to say. You just believe. And believe is getting pretty ethereal, and you can kind of believe whatever you want to believe about Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to believe who I am and what I'm calling to you to do. Are you willing to follow me? Because I want you to know there may be some sacrifice that is called. I want you to know, is my will going to be your will? Will you do my work my way? Will you follow me? And for me, personally, I want you to know that this gets started all the way back in my collegiate years. It was interesting. At first service, uh, we had a young man. Uh, he's actually my age now. I'm not sure I'm still in the category of young man, but his name is Dan Braden. He was here with his wife after first service. You know, I was just bringing back all these flashbacks, University of Oregon, me, brand new believer, lots and lots of rough edges, right? Didn't know much, right? But it was this process of like, God, I, I want to follow you, and I, I want to be yielded to you, but what does that even look like? And so I learned what it looked like to be involved in a student ministry on a very secular and pagan campus. What does it mean to represent Jesus Christ well and to walk with him in face of all sorts of temptation? And then I 
tried to learn, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the workforce as a businessman in the Portland metro area? And then when Karina and I got married, I'm like, well, what does it look like to follow Jesus as a husband? And then uh, later on, uh, what does that look like to follow Jesus as a dad, as a dad of eventually four kids? And there came a time after a lot of examination and talking with people that I knew that I, I sensed God was calling me to be a pastor. And so I was like willing to do that, understanding it'd be great sacrifice, really held the position in high esteem. And I went to seminary and it was, it was a lot of training. And then I became a, a pastor, started off as a youth pastor, then a youth and worship pastor, then an associate pastor, and did that in Beaverton, Oregon. And then uh, since that God was calling us and I was yielded to leave all comfort and family to, to come to a place called Waco, Texas. I'd never even been in Waco, to a, a small little church meeting in Hollywood Movie Theater number 13, which was smaller than my high school youth group when I was a youth pastor. I mean, it was very small, and yet, will you follow me to be separated from family and to, to go it and to try it in a new culture? And I want you to know it's just been this process of like, God, I'm, I want what you want. Um, many of you may not know this, but like Karina and I actually were wrestling with whether he was calling us to be missionaries in Russia. And uh, we even took Russian from a Russian, which was very interesting. But we we're like, God, I want what you want. And that regularly goes through my mind. God, what do you want from my life? Friends, if you want to walk with Jesus as a way of life, he needs to be the Lord of your life. There's something else that you need to know. If you're going to follow Jesus as a way of life, he not only he needs to be the Lord of your life, he needs to be the priority of our hearts. So here we are at the scene, all these crowds, the boat, the men getting in the boat, and this scribe making this statement, and all of a sudden he stopped in his tracks like, whoa. But there's one other guy who steps up and takes full advantage of the situation. He too wants to follow Jesus, except he wants to do it on his own terms. Take a look here, verse 21. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. So another disciple. The word disciple is mathetes. It literally means someone who learns from another. And this guy is someone who had been learning from Jesus. Now, just because you're a disciple of Jesus, that you're learning from Jesus, doesn't mean that you are committed to him, okay? And that's this, this guy here. He's like, I'm learning from you. Man, you got serious wisdom. The miracles you're doing, like, wow, totally amazed. He says, I, I tell you what, I want to follow you. I just, uh, I just have one thing I want to do first. I, I just got this big priority in my life. I'm just going to put it out there, Jesus. And he, and he says this. He said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And you're like, whoa, what in the world's going on here? I mean, like, certainly Jesus is like, okay, well, you've got a funeral. You've got a week to plan all things, family coming in. Well, of course, you should take care of that. Uh, I want you to know how it worked in, uh, in Israel. When you died... You were going to be buried that day, okay? If this man's father had died, he most certainly wouldn't be hanging out with the crowds, uh, listening to Jesus. He would be taking care of arrangements for his father's burial, which would happen on that day. And so I want you to see what Jesus says. It may have been a while since you've ever heard this from a pulpit. Look what Jesus said, verse 22. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, 
and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he said, permit me to bury my father, this was a phrase that meant, permit me first to allow my dad to die and for me to receive the inheritance. We don't know if this would be months, years, could even be decades if it's a younger father. And this man says, Jesus, man, you got everything I'd want in a, in a Messiah, in a Lord. I want to follow you, but I got one thing I need to really take care of first, and then I'm going to be able to follow you in style. I need to have dad pass away. I'm the oldest. I'm going to get my inheritance, and I'll tell you what. Then I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to have it all taken care of. I'm going to have everything I want in this life, just the way I would like to follow you. And Jesus makes this radical statement, and I'm sure you had to look at it twice, when he says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. This was a proverbial figure of speech, which basically meant, let the people of the world handle the matters of the world. Let the dead Those who are completely uninterested in me and spiritual things and my kingdom and knowing me as Lord and Messiah, let them take care of the things of this world. You, your top priority is to follow me. I want you to know this was an unraveling moment for this man. You see... I'm sure he's thinking like, whoa, wait a second here. He's thinking he's like doing a great thing. Like Jesus is going to say like, you got it, man. Next time I'm back through Capernaum, we'll see where you're at. Takes a couple decades. Just whenever, man, when you get ready, I tell you what, I'm always eager to have you be one of my followers. That's not Jesus' gospel. His gospel is this, follow me and let me be the first priority in your life. Perhaps this guy, he didn't want to face his father's wrath. He perhaps wanted to feel like, you know what? I got a family. I need to fulfill my duty. I like the financial security. The last thing I want to do is create some family dynamics where I'm no longer really popular or in favor of doing what they want. Jesus is saying, if you really want me and all that I'm about, I need to be your top priority. Follow me. That may mean that you may sacrifice some creature comforts. You may not have all it mapped out in your certainty, you know, like, well, this is what I want to do with my life. That's all fine if you want to think about those things, but Jesus is saying, hey, listen, bottom line, you follow me and want my will to be your will for your life. You see, it's a demand. It's all-encompassing. Your worship, time, who you are, your identity, identity. Let it be me. And you know why we do this? Like it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. He's the one who has overwhelmingly poured out his grace upon us. It's by grace we're saved. He forgives us of our sins. He himself has been the payment. He gives us eternal life, life with God, unending, eternal life, secure, and abundant life. And he calls us to relationship with himself. If it's life with God, it's the life of God. It's It's following him in this life. And that's where this man said, hey, wait a second here. Jesus, I want you to know, I want you to be a part of my life, maybe even a big part of my life. And Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm not going to be a part of your life. I am going to be your life. All of it. 
who you are, your identity, your direction, your past, your present, your future, your eternity. I am him. I tell you, when Jesus makes statements like this, these are crowd-thinning statements. Friends, we need to listen up. I want you to know that the screws are getting tight in our society. Our culture is coming down. It may have been popular in decades past to follow Jesus. Right now here in Texas, we're, you know, we don't have too much pressure. That's not true in other parts of this country or most certainly in other parts of this world. But get ready. There is going to be a great separation between the groupies of Jesus Folks are like, hey, I just like to go. I want a worship service that's more like a rock concert. I just like celebrity. I want you to make me feel good about myself. Give me a few pointers about my life, and I'm fine to wave the Christian banner then. But what is going to happen when the heat gets turned up, and it might cost you something, where he, you realize, wow, God is actually calling me to take next steps of growth. I will tell you what's happening here is when Jesus makes statements like this, which are often ignored in Christendom, What he's doing is he's separating the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. Which are you? If you're going to follow Jesus as a way of life, he needs to be Lord of your life. He needs to be the priority of your heart. And he needs to be the focus of your faith. I want you to know that Jesus had everyone's attention. They're all processing this. And they're listening including the disciples that have been tracking with Jesus and following him and actually a part of his group. And we're about to learn one key lesson, verse 23. It says, and when he got into the boat, look at this, his disciples followed him. You might want to underline that. His disciples followed him. They get into the boat. He had given them orders to go to the other side. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. So here they are on the Sea of Galilee. They're in Capernaum. They're going to go to the Copolis. It's about 10 miles. It should take them a couple hours. These are experienced fishermen. They can handle the boat. They have been through all sorts of weather, but I want you to know that these fishermen, they are fearful not only of where they're about to go, they were always fearful of storms. Because the Sea of Galilee, it's about 13 miles from north to south, seven miles wide. It's only 200 feet deep at its deepest point, so it's really pretty shallow. And you have Mount Hermon from the north. It's 9,200 feet above sea level. And you have the Sea of Galilee, which is about 600 feet below the sea level. And so what happens, especially from May through October... You have these storms, this cold wind that comes whipping down the mountain, and it hits that sea with that warm air, and it creates like a funnel, and that water just gets churning, and they have significant storms that can happen very rapidly. So fishermen, if they even thought there was a chance for a storm, they would stick pretty close to the shore. On the other hand, if they were out a little deeper, they were always keeping their eye out to the north, because if they saw a storm coming... They're immediately, we're getting back to shore because you know what? You likely are not going to make it if it's one of those ferocious storms. And all of a sudden, they're in one. Do you see that? There arose. 
a great storm. I love this in the Greek. It's called a megas seismos. I mean, that's where you get seismology, right? Huge, massive storm. It's a storm that's overwhelming them. And says it says, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. So here they are, and the, can't you see them? They're holding on for dear life. Water is coming into the boat, whether they have baskets or buckets. They're doing everything they can to get water out of the boat because they're trying to stay alive. And I mean, like, it's shocking that they're in this storm, but you know what's most shocking about this to me? Is that Jesus is asleep. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, what? And I'm sure they're like, Whoa. and they look, and Jesus is passed out in the back of the boat, and they're like, whoa, we're trying to make it. I tell you, that tells us a couple things about Jesus, doesn't it? It tells us that Jesus is indeed fully human, right? I mean, he, in his humanity, is exhausted by labor, by all the communicating and all the messages and the work and the healing. Don't think like, well, he just had infinite power and it just never affected him. No, in his humanity, it did to the degree that he could be so sound asleep that even a storm couldn't wake him up. And I want you to know that if you are a really sound sleeper, you're a lot like Jesus, right? You may think like, I don't have much going for you, but I tell you, for me, I can really sleep through everything. I, you just need to tell people, I'm just being like Jesus like that, man. You got a lot going for you. You're doing good. But you know what else it tells us about us, about Jesus? It tells us that he is absolute deity. Is Jesus worried about the storm? No. He knew where they were going. He told them where they were going. The storm is nothing to him because Jesus is God, and he's got this fully in control. Now, um, his disciples don't know that. In fact, uh, they, they're overwhelmed they come to a place where they actually think they are at their end, that they are going to perish. You see it, verse 25. Can't you hear the storm? The winds, they're whipping around. They're holding on for dear life. They're trying to get as much water out of the boat. And so, verse 25, they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. They, they come to Jesus and, and I'm sure they have like no idea what Jesus could do. Perhaps they're thinking like, well, at least Jesus could help us to get some of the water out of the boat. At least that might help us. But they demonstrate great faith. They are at the end of themselves, and they know that there's only one that could really help them, and that one is Jesus. Friends, if you have come to the place where you feel like you are at your end, this is your prayer. Save me, Lord. I think I'm perishing. And that's what they do. They utter this prayer. And you're like, oh, come on, guys. Look at verse 25. Lord, we're perishing. You know, you're, you're sitting there, and most of you are like, okay, not a big deal. And that's because we're like armchair quarterback this thing, right? We're like, what's wrong with those disciples? Jesus is in the boat. Everything's going to be fine, right? You know where that armchair quarterback thing comes from, right? Yeah, it comes from like a bunch of guys, and they're sitting there eating a bunch of cheese nachos, nacho cheese, right? There, right? And, they're, and they're watching a football game, and they're like, hey, block that guy. What's wrong with you? you got our quarterback. What's wrong? And see, an armchair quarterback, you know, they're, they're sitting there, and they're like, you should block that guy. And I'm like, take your time out here. 
When's the last time you gone, gone against a 320-pound defensive lineman who's not real happy and wants to tear up your quarterback? Does, okay, well, it's one thing to like, you should just block that guy. It's another when you are facing the lineman. And it's another thing for you to say, you know what, what's wrong with those disciples? Man, Jesus is in the boat. It's fine, right? And it's another when you're in the storm. How are you doing in your storm? You ever been where you feel like, man, it's totally coming apart? I want you to know that I've been there on multiple occasions. That's where these guys are at. And they are feeling they are about to perish. And they call out to Jesus. They wake him up and say, you are our only hope. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And notice what Jesus does. It is very significant that Jesus addresses his disciples before he does anything else. And he said to them, verse 26, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? You know, if Jesus had any concern about the outcome of what was going to happen, like, whoa, whoa, this is a much bigger storm than I thought was coming here, he would have what? Addressed it, right? But he's not concerned about that. You know where all of his attention is drawn? It's drawn to the faith of his disciples. This is what is called a teachable moment. This is where we learn the best in those teachable moments And he asked them, where is your faith? Is your faith in the circumstances, the waves, the wind, the water in the boat, the fact that we're just getting rocked and rolled everywhere? Or is your faith in me who is with you in the boat? Now, friends, I want you to know, there is no shame in feeling fearful and and going through great difficulty, and facing and being frightened by danger. We're human. That's going to happen. Certainly has happened to me. But I want you to know that even in the midst of our great storms, we have one who is with us, who can give us peace, strength, and perspective. You remember like in Psalm 23, that great psalm? You remember in verse 4, it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm, I'm looking around here, and I see some of you, and I know like, whoa, this has been a close call. In fact, I don't know how it's going to work out. Know this. I am with you. That makes all the difference in this life and in the life to come. You see, in this life, we're going to have storms. The question is, where are we going to put our faith? Are we going to put our faith in our circumstances or in Christ? And they, they're having this very teachable moment. Jesus says, right now, where is your faith at? And they're like, Wow, our faith, I guess, is in our inability to actually address the storm. And then Jesus does this in verse 26. Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Can't you see that? Jesus addresses his men. They're holding on for dear life, right? Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? And then he rebukes the wind and he calms the sea. 
and it's instantaneously, it's like this massive giant hand all of a sudden stops the wind and the sea becomes perfectly calm. That's not how this works. If you have all this wind energy in a pretty shallow lake, that water is going to be heaving and going every which direction for quite a while. But when Jesus speaks, it suddenly becomes calm. It is, you're going to be hard-pressed to have a greater display of deity. And these men are absolutely shocked. In fact, verse 27, the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They had seen how Jesus could address the crowds, how he could handle and cure people from diseases and deformity and how he even raised people from the dead and healed sickness. But they had never seen a display of divinity like this, where a raging storm where they thought they were going to die is instantly calmed by just the one command, be still of Jesus. Friends, we need to take this to full heart. We who are following Jesus, our focus of our faith needs to be him. And I need you to know this, and some of you know this all too well. We all are going to go through storms in this life, right? We all pass through storms. And storms have a way of revealing the focus of our faith. Storms have a way of revealing the focus of our faith. And I've, I've seen that in different storms. Financial storms, uh, when my oldest daughter got cancer and we walked through that, I've had to deal with storms of, of betrayal, Storms where I had no idea how certain things were going to work out. Health storms. And, and you have your storms as well, right? You too. Maybe it's right now going through the storm of cancer, an undiagnosed disease, a wayward child, discouragement, depression, storms. I'm talking painful storms. Dark. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Storms reveal the true focus of our faith. Maybe you're going through career problems or you've got personal issues or a relationship breakdown. Where is the focus of your faith? And you might be asking, well, why do we have to go through storms anyway? Why can't we just trust Jesus and no storms? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? That's not how it works. So why the storms? Let me give you three reasons. One, and that is this is the conditions in which we live. This is the environment of our pilgrimage. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. All of creation is a degree of dysfunction. Yes, there's a lot of beauty and amazement, but I want you to know from the fall of Adam, there is this curse and things don't work the way they should work. And there are bodies that break down and there's things that shouldn't happen that do. And people are sinful. We're sinful. I'm sinful. Uh, haven't you seen... Like, man, people can do some pretty wicked stuff. Just look at the news. Same problems, just uh, different names. Look at Ukraine. And like, you think like, well, but then once you become a Christian, you don't do things like that. I, I want you to know the most disappointing and perhaps even hurtful stuff I've experienced have been for people that supposedly identify as followers of Jesus. I expect it from the world. But I want you to know, why do we have storms? We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. There's fallenness everywhere around. Let me give you another reason why we have storms. And that's consequence and correction. 
Let me give you one name, Jonah. Oh, right? God had a plan for Jonah, and this was his will, and uh, guess what? Jonah said, you've got to be kidding. No way. Ninevites, hate them. Nope, not doing it. I want you to know if you are walking away from God and what he wants you to do, he has a way of getting your full attention. I, and it, it may not be pretty, and it likely will be painful, but he has a way of getting your full attention. If you are outside his will, he may let you kind of plow on a little while, and he's, he's bringing messengers. In fact, you're hearing one right now calling you back to fullness of yielding to him. Let's go God's way. But if you resist and you're one of his, he's going to bring you back. That's not the case here. Let me give you a third reason for the storms. It's for our personal growth as a follower of Christ. Who sent them into this storm? Jesus did, right? Did you see that? Verse 18, he gave them an order. Verse 23, what? They're following him. This isn't one of those situations where these disciples are outside of God's will. No, far from it. They're exactly where Jesus wants them. Why? He is bringing them to fullness of maturity. He's training them. He's developing them. That's what God does in storms. And sometimes it's a storm because we're in the fallen world, the fallen people, and at the same time, God is maturing our faith. But that is what is happening. And friends, we shouldn't be surprised. When Barnabas and Paul were on their missionary journeys, you know, this is what they proclaimed. Acts 14, verse 22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many, all sorts of different types. That's how we enter the kingdom of God. I want you to know that storms are a part of the process for spiritual maturity. It's where we learn some of the deepest and most important lessons. They're painful, they're memorable, but it's what is needed because otherwise we'd be insufferable. We'd be prideful. We'd be so self-sufficient. It's all about us, and God uses storms to realize it's all about God, and he's forming, fashioning, and shaping us for his glory. You see, Jesus used this storm to teach them not to fear circumstances so much, but rather to have faith in him. And, you know, why is Jesus asleep on the boat? I've kind of wrestled with that. I'm going to tell you where I land on that. Jesus was asleep on the boat to train them how to function when he would be ascended into heaven, when they wouldn't see him. And yet he was still calling them to move forward with the gospel of the kingdom, even in the midst of the storms in their life and in the world. I am with you. I've got this. You trust me. J.C. Ryle observes this. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Know this, a vertical perspective will keep you from a horizontal panic. So friends, this is a call to action, a call to evaluate. Are you really fully yielded to Jesus? What we also need to do is encourage others. This is a tough world. We need to not just make radical assumptions. Everybody's fine. Everybody could use encouragement in their walk with Christ. And we need to engage in the next step. God what are you calling me to do with my family in this church, in this community? 
I want what you want. So friends, we're at base camp right here. We're about ready to get back on the climb. And how are we going to follow Jesus as a way of life? We are going to do it together, following Jesus as the Lord of our lives, as the one who is the priority of our hearts and the focus of our faith. You see, we follow Jesus as a way of life when Christ is our life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this tremendous passage, oftentimes just overlooked, and yet with absolute clarity, you show us the gospel and you call us to depth and maturity, reality, and the joy it is to follow you. For someone who is here today who's never truly trusted in you, they, they know about you, but they've never came to a point where their, their faith is completely in you and they're yielded to you, God, would they pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and my sin this morning, Lord. I trust you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And God, for all of us who do know you, Lord, our desire is to walk in your ways, to glorify you, to realize you're stretching us, you are with us in the storms, and you're calling us to represent you in this world, in this community, for your glory. So give us great grace. We love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grant, for that challenge this morning and a great reminder. You know, sometimes we get up at the end of the service and we kind of give you an extra little nugget to go out with, but this morning it was very pointed about the storms of life. And each one of us are in either facing a storm or going to face the storm or have faced a storm. And so it's very personal to how that sermon touched your heart this morning. But we want you to know this, at Fellowship Bible, it's our desire that we are able to, as you evaluate where you are in those storms or how you're walking through them, it's our desire to be able to encourage you and engage with you. And maybe this morning, you just need somebody to pray with you or, or over you. Our prayer team's at the back, and they would love to have that opportunity just to encourage you through this season of life. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you, you heard that Jesus loves you and he gave his life for you, and, and, and you've been trying to do this thing called life on your own. We want you to know that you don't have to do it on your own. God is right in the middle of it through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of his Holy Spirit. Our prayer team would love to have that discussion with you if maybe you prayed and invited Christ into your life this morning. Wherever you may be, we want you to know that God is with you and he's for you. And his scripture reveals that today. And he wants to be with you in the midst of those storms. So I want us to do one thing. If you'll take that, that, uh, that sermon note out one more time. If you'll just take that back out. I know you put everything away. You're like, Pastor, don't do that. But just take it back out. Psalm 23, 4. You may, mem- you may have this memorized. You don't have to take it back out. But Psalm 23, 4, I want us to read that together as our encouragement as we walk out. Because whether you and I are in a storm, we're going to come into contact with somebody this week who is in a storm, and we can give them some great news that God desires for them to know that He is in control. Let's read Psalm 23 to 4 together as a congregation this morning. Are you ready? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Boy, that should comfort us this morning and give us encouragement to go out and be a light in this world. Have a blessed week. Mothers, have a wonderful Mother's Day. We will see you all soon.